Bible. All right, you ready to study? Take some notes, get a pen out. Really going to spend some time in the text now. We're in Romans chapter 14 this morning. Romans chapter 14. There are some parts of the Bible that we love to gravitate to because they encourage our spirit and because they make us feel stronger in our faith and in our practice. And maybe we have passages that remind us of God's love and mercy and faithfulness and we just go to those especially when we're discouraged or we need some spiritual support. There are also some other passages in Scripture that are a little bit more challenging to us and they confront things that are happening in our lives that maybe aren't pleasing to the Lord and they they call into question or call into account our thinking and our lifestyle and we may avoid those a little bit more often or we may try to explain them away and and say, well, you know, I don't know if that necessarily applies to me like it applies to other people. This is one of those passages. This is one of those more uh, difficult ones that really in many ways has been misunderstood and misappropriated and, and misquoted and and just kind of been controversial, even though really it should be one of the more foundational passages for our lives as Christians. And Romans 14 has a lot in it. We're not going to try to do it all this morning. In fact, I was way more ambitious when I was studying, and I realized that we're really only going to get to about two verses this morning, even though we'll read about ten. But we'll go into it this week. We'll go into it next week. We may even do a third week. Uh, into February. I'm going to give you some homework tonight, so you need to, um, I know, homework, isn't that fun? I've always wanted to be a teacher, give homework. Uh, you Leave some space in your notes or get an extra piece of paper because I'm going to give you some questions at the end um, that, will, that will challenge us and kind of allow us to think and study more this week. But I, I want to tell you up front and be very honest this morning that some of what we study this morning may step on our toes a little bit. And some of it may bug us a little bit. And some of it may um, seem to uh, you or maybe to others or to me that it's too zealous in its scope, that it's going too far, that we're asking too much. Uh, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. It's a good word. Good. Because that's what the Bible does, right? It's powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides. It, it cuts through all the junk, all the flab in our lives and it gets right down to where we need to be. So this passage is going to do that. It's going to confront those things. And, and because of that, and because any time we study a passage like that, the enemy's working hard then to irritate us and to make us feel irritated with the text, and by extension with the Lord, we need to make sure our hearts are right. So I want to, before we begin our study, I really want us to spend some time in prayer. And, and I want to encourage you as you pray, I'll pray for us, but I want you to be praying at the same time, that, that you ask the Spirit of the Lord to break down your defenses. And you ask Him to challenge your biases. And you ask Him, and I mean this very seriously, to aggressively confront any selfishness. Because if our hearts aren't open to this, and by open I mean willing to be changed, then we're just going to waste the next bit of time in our lives because we're just going to say words into the air and they're going to hit the ceiling and then just fade away. So our hearts have to be ready. We have to be willing to say, Lord, your word needs to change me and, and, and alter who I am if there's an area that needs to be changed. 
Okay? Agreed? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you and we love your word. And we know that you gave us your word so that we can become more like you. Father, we pray this morning that you'd open up our hearts. We pray that your spirit right now would be the speaker. Father, just get me out of the way. You speak to us, we pray. You challenge us. You confront areas in our lives that are not surrendered to you and not pleasing to you. And Father, at the same time, we pray you would encourage us. You would help us to see how you have transformed our lives to be conformed to the image of Christ. And Father, we pray that you teach us, that you encourage us, you refresh us, you'd stir us, you'd show us what needs to happen in our lives. Lord, this is the word for us this morning. This is the word for Harbor Rock Tabernacle. This is what you need to tell us. So Lord, may our hearts be receptive to it. And may we be blessed by this time in the word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read the passage and let's take time to study it, take some notes, listen to God's instruction. This is going to be kind of the groundwork this morning. Next week we'll get more specific and the questions I'll give you at the end will kind of transition us into that. Okay, Romans chapter 14. Thank you for turning. Let's start in verse 12. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what's good for, excuse me, what for you, uh, excuse me, let me start again on verse 16. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not let the work of God be torn down for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they're evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is not good is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Now there is a ton there. And again, we're going to take this apart over the next few weeks. But this morning, I really want to just concentrate on verses 12 and 13. Because there's enough in there for three messages, I'm going to try to do it in one. Now, by way of background, because it's always important to get context, always important because we don't want to just pull the passage out and say, well, this is for us. We've got to know what was behind it. There were two groups in Rome that were at odds with each other. There were the Jewish believers and there were the Gentile believers. And they were struggling over the issue of whether to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. Non-believers would take animals to whatever temple they had in Rome, and they would have the food, the animals be sacrificed to idols. And then that food would be taken, and it would be sold at the market at a discount. Now, the Gentiles didn't see a problem with this. They would go and buy the food and eat it, no big deal. But the Jews had a major problem with it. It was unthinkable to them because the law forbade having food that was sacrificed to idols. 
and there was a huge debate going on in Rome. And what concerned Paul as he wrote to them was that both sides were starting to be very critical of each other and very critical of each other's convictions or lack of convictions. Now, Paul's writing the greatest apologetic book on Christianity that's ever been written outside of the Bible as a whole. But this is such an important issue to the people in Rome that he feels like he has to break from teaching about justification and sanctification and impartation and regeneration and all the other shuns that are in Romans. He has to take a break from that in chapter 14 and deal with this issue because it was distracting them from the intent of the gospel. And it was creating so much conflict in the body because people at this point were more concerned about what they felt and what they wanted than about what God had taught and intended for them. How many know that feelings are much more subjective and unreliable than the truth of God's Word? We can't just rely on what we believe and what we feel and what we think and what's visceral to us. We love to defend our preferences, but have you ever noticed that we get a lot less dogmatic about what the Bible teaches, especially when it starts to hone in on our preferences. We'll say, oh, I believe I'm allowed to do this, and I believe I have the right to do this, but when we come to the Bible and it says, well, don't do this, we go, well, come on, that's cultural. Or, or that, that doesn't necessarily apply to me. Let's hear what the Word says. In verses 1 to 11, we're not going to read them, but just look at them this week. Verses 1 to 11, Paul summarizes the issue, and then he says in verse 10 that it's wrong and non-beneficial to judge each other, especially when there's contempt behind it. And then he goes into verse 12, and he says, don't forget, each one of us is going to give an account of himself to God. Now that's a clear reminder to us right at the outset of our study, that when you and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will not be standing with anybody else. None of our family and friends is going to stand there and advocate for us and promote us and applaud us and say, well, Lord, you didn't know about Rhodes. What a great guy he was. And he did all these things and he preached and, and counseled or whatever. And, and Lord, you need to approve him. There's not going to be anybody that's going to stand there from our lives that's going to say, Lord, this guy's good to go. There's also not going to be any of our enemies that are going to sit there and say, well, you didn't know about this guy. And, and there's going to be nobody that's going to criticize and condemn us and say they're not worthy of anything. God doesn't need our help to advocate or criticize each other. He knows exactly what's in our hearts. He's not fooled by it. There's nothing outside the scope of his knowledge. There's nothing that he doesn't understand. He knows exactly what's going on. And the bottom line is that we are to live as unto the Lord. Now, if that command is given in Ephesians 5 to wives, wives, subject yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord. If that's good enough for God to tell wives, then how much more exponentially is it relevant to us as the bride of Christ? If my wife is supposed to submit herself to me as unto the Lord, then how much more am I as a believer, as the bride of Christ, to submit myself to Christ in humble, sacrificial submission because I love Him and because He's changed my life 
Now, that perspective actually can become a little bit dangerous to us if we say, well, then, because I live as unto the Lord, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. I don't have to answer to anybody around me. I don't have to worry about my actions in light of the body because I just serve the Lord. That's way too insular in its scope. There is a responsibility beyond serving the Lord, even though that's first and foremost. Notice that verse 12 doesn't end the thought. He goes into verse 13, which basically says, in light of serving the Lord, there are guidelines on how we're to act with each other. And we are accountable to each other within the body of Christ for how we think and how we live. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're just going to look at two guidelines God gives us. We'll look at more next week. The two are in verses 13, in verse 13. First of all, don't judge one another anymore. That's number one. Number two is, don't put an obstacle or stumbling block in another brother's way. Now, both of those statements from Romans 14 are absolutely relevant to how we live today. Even though Paul wrote them in the first century about a debate in Rome between the Jews and Gentiles over whether we should eat meat sacrificed to idols. That shows you how the Bible is timeless. The Bible, it says, is living and active. This is not something we can just dismiss and say, well, they had a debate, meat sacrificed to idols. That doesn't mean anything to me in 2011. No, the Bible is living and active. So it is absolutely applicable to where we are. So God this morning is giving us two statements. First of all, do not judge others anymore about their convictions. Don't look at other people and say, well, your convictions are too strong. Or your convictions are not strong enough. Don't get into that polarization game where we're saying and evaluating and criticizing what people believe. For the Jews in Rome, they were still bound in their hearts. Practically, they said to themselves, we are legitimately trying to obey the rule of the law. And the law says, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. In fact, it even moved into Acts 15. You can look at that passage this week at the Jerusalem Council where some of the Jewish teachers were saying the Gentiles needed to be circumcised. They needed to adhere to the law in order to really be saved. And Peter and the other apostles, James, were kind of passively allowing that debate to go on. So here comes Paul. I love Paul because he never backs down from anything. Short little bald dude. And he walks in and he says, Nah, there's a problem here. Now remember... This is only five chapters after Paul gets saved. He's still a little bit questionable to a lot of the believers. Paul walks in and gets right in the Jewish teacher's face. And he says, what you're teaching is wrong. The Jews are not allowed to tell the Gentiles that they need to be circumcised because we're not bound by the law. And it says in Acts 15, there was great dissension and debate in Jerusalem over this issue. The, the word literally means in the text, strife to the point of insurrection. It was a Donnybrook happening in Jerusalem over this very issue that we're debating in Romans 14. Now that proves that we are not always going to agree as believers. 
I've heard it said, well, we need to have unity for the sake of unity. The problem with unity for the sake of unity is it usually comes at the expense of the truth. So what we need to say is truth for the sake of unity. If we can agree on the truth, we will not have a problem with unity. But if we slough off the truth and just say, well, we just need to all get along and give a big group hug, that's not going to work because the truth is going to get lost in that. Now, out of Acts 15, Paul said one of the essentials, listen now, this is important. He said one of the essentials is that we should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. That's in Acts 15, 28. So the Jewish believers in Rome were saying, well, we know this happened in Jerusalem. We are faithfully trying to follow the law. The problem was that they were stunned spiritually. They had become so preoccupied with the law that they didn't understand God's grace and what Christ had done. So by extension now, they're criticizing the Gentiles for not abiding by the law. The same problem happened in Galatia. If you read the book of Galatians, you see the same debate. Should the Gentiles have to follow the rules of the law? Now, for the Gentiles, haven't lost you yet, right? For the Gentiles, they didn't feel bound to the law. They didn't grow up with that background of adherence to the Pentateuch and adherence to the law. They didn't really understand the need for it because they understood God's grace and mercy. And of course you obey because of what God's done and how he's changed your heart. So, so why are we going back to the letter of the law and meat offered to idols and all the other things, Jews? Why are, why are we doing that? Now that was positive in the sense that they understood grace and they understood the practical redemption that Christ gave us and the freedom of that. But, but the problem was it was causing them to become cavalier about the law. And when they became cavalier about the law, which is still a guide, it's still a teacher for us, when they became cavalier about it, now they became critical of the Jews for having these restrictions. So on one side, you've got the Jews saying, you're being too, too frivolous with it. And on the other side, you've got the Gentiles saying, you're being too tight with it. Now there's a parallel to today. Because on one side of Christianity, we have those that we would call legalists. They're, they're like the Jews. In their good intent, they're, they're thinking within the margins of the law. That they don't, they're not narrow, but they believe that they need to be disciplined to honor the Lord. On the other side, you'd have what I'm going to call the libertarians. Nothing to do with politics here. The libertarians, who are like the Gentiles, they feel less obligated to the restrictions of the law. They're saying, we're, we're going to live in the freedom that God's provided. It even goes into how we deal with things evangelistically. The, the, the legalists, I don't mean that term pejoratively, the legalists say that we have to have strong biblical convictions because that's will be, what will be uh, attractive to the lost. They will see that there's a difference in us and they will see the evidence of regeneration in our lives and through that, we'll be able to show the love and mercy of God and teach the gospel. The, the, the libertarians would say, well, we need to be more relevant. We need to be more like the world so that we can have a conversation with them. And so, hopefully, by building a relationship, at some point, we'll be able to share the gospel and how it's changed our lives, even though we don't look much different from the world. Personally, I'm not very convinced by the second argument. 
I just haven't seen it make the impact in making the church and the world more holy. But you have these two factions. You had them in Romans 14. You had them in Acts 15. You have them in 2011. The, the legalists and the libertarians. And when pressed, the legalist says the libertarian has convictions that are too broad and too open and too liberal. And the libertarian says the legalist has convictions that are too narrow and too closed and too conservative. Now the reason Paul calls that out, look back at the text now, is that he says it's not up to us to determine the spiritual maturity of another believer based on their actions. It's not up to us to sit in judgment and say, well, I think you're this because of what I see. We know in Matthew 7 that Christ said, judge not that you be not judged. Nobody likes to be judged. Nobody likes to be criticized. So certainly that's a reason. But even more so, in Romans 14, he says it is not your role to be the spiritual arbiter of maturity. It's not your job, Christian, to look at another Christian and say, well, here's what I evaluate about the state of your spiritual walk based on what I see you doing. See, the problem in Rome was not the differences. It was how they acted on the differences. Those who embraced liberty despised the believers and saw them as extreme and weak. Those who embraced the law despised the others because they saw them as carnal and loose. And both sides were arrogant. And both sides were stuck in division. And what a damage to the cause of Christ. I think that's why Paul stops in the middle of this great treatise about doctrine. And he says, stop for a minute. Because you're hurting what I'm talking about. You're hurting the cause of Christ. Jesus judged you because he's holy. But he didn't give you the right in the Great Commission or in the Great Commandment now to take his job and to judge everybody else. He said, you love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says, listen, this is Christianity 101. Don't judge one another anymore. That's an obvious statement. Worry about your own salvation. Worry about what's going on in your life. Worry about working out your salvation with fear and trembling and moving forward in maturity. Don't get caught up, Christian, now in pointing fingers. That's what he's saying here in verse 13 in the first part. And then he doesn't get stuck with that because that's, that's elementary school for us as Christians. He says, let's get to the deeper issue. Let's get to something that only a mature Christ-like person practices on a regular basis. Look back at verse 13. Let's read it again. But rather, determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in another brother's way. Now, the word stumbling block is very interesting in the Greek. It's the word scandalon. It's the word that we get scandal or scandalous from. And literally, it means to set a trap or a snare that causes someone to fall. So he's saying in the original language, don't be a scandalon, Christian. Don't be someone that by your behavior sets a trap. Now, notice that's an active verb that sets a trap or a snare that causes someone to fall. The burden responsibility now shifts from being concerned about what others are doing 
to being focused on what we're doing. We spend a lot of time saying, well, look at him, and look at him, and he believes that, and he believes that, and he allows that, and he does that, and she does that, and she said that, and that. And we spend so much time thinking about that. Paul says, knock it off. Pay attention now to yourself. Pay attention to what you're doing, because there may be things in your life and in your conviction that are harming or hindering the spiritual maturation of those around you. Stop and think about that just for a minute. Because what he's saying is that a key focus, a key characteristic of our life is that we are to be more focused on the health and strength and encouragement and maturity of others than we are about ourselves. That's what love does. Love says you are more important than I am. You matter more. What happens to you is of greater concern to me than what happens to me. Think about that. Christ proved that on the cross. He said, I will sacrifice myself. I will go through the pain and suffering, not only of the cross, but of having the weight of every single sin that's ever been committed put on me. And I will die for you because I love you. And that's how I will prove my love for you. And that's how you will know that my love is genuine. I will put you first. Love does that. The reason why marriages fail is because we stop doing that. The reason why kids get rebellious and wander away from the Lord is because we stop loving them the way that we should and they stop loving us the way that they should. When we really love others, especially as members of the body, it means that self must be secondary and sacrifice must come first. So we say, deny yourself daily, take up your cross and follow me. And we think of that in relationship to Christ. Okay, I'll sacrifice myself to the Lord and, and I'll serve him and I'll walk in holiness. But that's not just about the Lord. It's about our relationship within the body. That's where it gets a little more dicey because we live in an entitlement culture where it's about what I want. But he's saying within the body, let the same mind be in you. Sacrifice, denial of self, yielding to others because you love them. We always hear the world asking why there's so much judgment with Christians and not enough love. Instead of falling into the definition that love means tolerance, we need to start to model the fact that love means sacrifice. We will convince people of the authenticity of the gospel if they see us within the body sacrificing to each other. We will convince them. And as I said a few weeks ago in prayer meeting, the world's perception of how Christians should act and the standards that we should have is often far more conservative than we ourselves have because we somehow have allowed our liberty to be more than it should but those outside the church are looking at us and they're wanting to see how, confer, how firm our convictions are. So every single one of us needs to have convictions. After study and prayer and counsel and weighing the cost of our actions, we need to be absolutely sure that what we believe is what the Bible says. That what we believe is what God has called us to live and believe. 
We need to be able to say, I can defend what I believe from Scripture. I want to be distinctive and set apart from the world because that's what God's called me to. I'm not going to be apologetic about it. I'm not going to be apathetic about it. I am going to be passionate about it. I'm going to be a Bible-believing, above-reproach, uncompromised Christian. I'm not going to have actions that are questionable. I'm not going to have people say, well, I'm not really sure what they believe because I saw what they were doing. We're going to follow Christ's example and we're going to live in a way that's pleasing to him. Church, that's our job. I was working on the bylaws for our church this week and our expectations for leaders and teachers and even for members. And I want to tell you up front as a church that we are going to have high standards for our members. We're going to have strong expectations of how we are going to live because we represent the Lord, Lord first and foremost. We represent the gospel. We represent this ministry. And it is far easier to maintain a reputation that is biblical and godly than to rebuild a reputation that's been damaged. So we're going to start at the point of walking in holiness. And we can endlessly debate the gray issues that Scripture isn't explicit about and we can defend our stance, especially as it shapes our backgrounds and opinions. But I want you to know that Romans 14 is far more than about rules. It is about the heart and the intent of God. What is God's heart? What is God's intent? What is God's desire for us? So much of the controversy and debate in Christianity lies in the question of liberty. And, and, and the gray areas, and what am I allowed to do, what am I allowed, not allowed to do? And, and while there's still some remnants of legalism, all too often now, it's weighted in the other direction. And I hear people say, well, I have liberty, and I don't have a problem with it, so why should others? And why should I have to be expected to sacrifice? If they're weak, they're going to stumble anyway, so, so why do I have to do that? And essentially what we're saying is, I care about what I want rather than about what the Bible expects and about what's going to hurt or help my brother. See, the problem today is that our culture has changed so much. Our culture is much looser. The moral decline is more steep and obvious. And the avalanche of information and temptation really seems now at this point almost impossible to avoid. I think we've passed the point of being able to stem the tide. And the world will always appeal not to our heart and mind. Temptation is never intelligent. Temptation appeals to our gut. It appeals to our lust. It's the temptation of self. My rights, my choice, my comfort, my desires. And temptation, have you noticed, it never moves slowly. It doesn't slow down and say, well, I'm going to tempt you now, so let's stop and analyze whether it's logical and good at this point to sin. You ever been tempted like that? The slow burn of maybe? It, it's usually very quick, very in the moment. Just do it now. You can have it if you'll just grab it. Temptation is never reasonable. It's always reactionary. We see it even in how the enemy tempted Jesus. Knowing that Jesus is weakened from lack of food 
and from isolation and from heat. He argues for him to disobey by offering food and physical help and perceived authority. He thinks that Jesus will be short-sighted enough and shallow enough to yield to momentary pleasures. But listen, that's all sin can offer. All it can offer is temporary pleasure. It never tells you that the long-term effect is judgment and punishment. It never gives you the bottom line. It only says, hey, you need it now. Eve, grab that fruit. It looks good. Moses, hey, that guy's hurting a fellow Jew. You need to go deal with that. Israelites, you're thirsty. You need to complain. Maybe you should get a better leader. David, hey, look at that woman. She's attractive. You're king. Go get her. Always now, always lust, always reaction. That's why Paul says to Timothy, listen now, move on to maturity. Stop getting caught in the sins of your youth. Because when you're young, I'm not young anymore, you're impulsive, you're reactionary, you go after what looks good, you don't think about the long-term costs. And then when you get middle-aged like me, you start to say, well, I better think about this for a second. What's this going to do? Is that going to be the wise thing? Is that going to help me or hurt me? Now, we all know this. This is, this is no new word about temptation. But knowing that doesn't change the fact that sin is attractive and powerful and enticing. And just because we know that it's going to be that way, it doesn't mean we have to give in to it. And it doesn't mean we have to adapt our convictions and our values down in response. There is always going to be a relentless attack on biblical values in the name of cultural advancement. And the pressure is not to feel alienated or quirky for openly living in a way that is pleasing to God. Because they're not ashamed of living in a way that 20 years ago was unthinkable and unmentionable. Just watch ads. Just watch what's on your TV now. And what we're being shown between breaks in the game or breaks in the news. What they're advertising 20 years ago, I'm old enough to remember it, 20 years ago, you didn't advertise those things on TV. Remember the debate over whether cigarettes could be advertised on TV? That was the big debate. Now they advertise anything. And you can catch some things even on basic cable that you blush at and go, I cannot believe that is on my television. Now the enemy knows that the more he can make that change mainstream, so people don't even think about it anymore, now it's going to put tremendous pressure on us to say either we don't believe that's right and we don't believe that's biblical and we need to stand against it or we have to yield to it. And because it's so hard and unpopular to stand alone, especially for biblical convictions, the normal inclination of our human nature will be to say, well, maybe I can just relax what I believe. Maybe it's not an essential. The great danger of that is it feeds the core characteristic of sin, compromising in something that gives temporary pleasure but doesn't have eternal value. And listen, when that becomes familiar to us, instead of uneasy and discomforting and alien, 
there will be a greater conviction to keep compromising and keep relaxing our convictions until essentially we don't believe anything. We have to ask as believers, what is the cost? What is the impact if I do relax my standards? What is the impact if I give myself more latitude? We debate the gray areas, but I thought, what if we did this in other areas of our lives? I'm not going to fight as hard, we might say, for the purity and integrity of my marriage. I'm not going to protect it anymore. I'm going to let myself be drawn into relationships with other people, have my heart compromised. I'm going to neglect our relationship. I'm not going to sacrifice anymore. I'm just going to become selfish. I'm going to let my kids do whatever they want. No rules, no boundaries. I'm going to spoil them. I'm going to buy them anything they want. I'm going to let them watch questionable stuff because, you know, they need to be fitting in better at school. And I don't really need to spend time with them because they need their space. I'm going to take a softer, more objective, more open view to the Bible. Let's just live by the basic principles. Let's not view it. Come on now, it's 2011. Let's not view it as God's holy truth. Let's not say that every word applies to me. Let's just pick out the stuff that, that, that makes us feel good. Let's let our values slip a little bit. You know, God's too conservative. It's important that we be able to figure out what, what's not really black and white. Because we need to fit in. The question that hit me as I wrote those things down is, when do you stop? When do you say, hmm, No, that's gone too far. Because if you watch culture, the line of what's too far has rapidly moved, hasn't it? So now we look at it and we go, well, that's not too far because society, you know, and society is enlightened. I I think it's okay. Well, the Bible, no, the Bible, come on. It's good. Now, I know I'm being a little bit facetious, for where most, or if not all of us are spiritually. But listen, this is the trap. This is the snare. And if we contribute to us, remember what stumbling block means. It means to set a trap. So are we hurting other believers because we're rationalizing that the Lord left the door open to us to interpret it how we want, and I'm going to exercise my liberty. So because I'm exercising my liberty... Other people are just going to have to deal with it. When what we should say is, instead of relaxing my convictions, I'm going to tighten them up. I would never become slack about my marriage or my kids or about the Word of God. So why am I allowing so much leeway in the things that aren't absolutely clear in the Bible? And when somebody asks me about it, I'm not going to be defensive and antagonistic and say, well, you're weaker and you have a problem. I'm going to think about my spiritual reputation and I am going to sacrifice in love and I'm going to follow the Word of God. Now, I know that's radical and I don't care. I don't care. The days are short. The times are evil. We're called to walk circumspectly. And we are called in 1 Timothy 4.12 to be an example. My first ministry was with singles 
a long time ago. Young singles, 18 to 35. And we chose as our verse, 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no man despise your youth, but be an example of the believers in word, conversation, love, spirit, faith, and purity. That is the standard, church, to be an example of what a biblical Christian looks like, of what a disciple of Christ looks like in how we talk, relate, act, trust, and live. Not looking for spiritual wiggle room, not trying to finesse holiness, not renegotiating the standards. Instead, setting the highest standard of godliness in every way. Now we're going to study that more. I'm done. i got to give you some questions. Home over. Maybe there will be a test. No, I'm just kidding. But I want to encourage you this week. Here's your assignment. Okay, you ready? You got your, I see you guys getting your pens out. I'm so encouraged by that. I want you to study Romans 14 this week. And I want you to ask the Lord what He wants you to hear. And how He wants to change you to meet His expectations. And I want to give you these questions to ask yourself to really ponder during the week. I want to encourage you to write them down. They're going to be long. I'll take time to read them so you can get them. The Lord just gave them to me 8 o'clock this morning. I'm getting ready. The questions were there. I knew the message wasn't complete. I went to bed unsettled. But I want, we're going to deal with these next week. But I want you to think critically about these questions in terms of the gray areas or in terms of things that you're doing that you kind of know aren't really in line with the Lord. They're not really pleasing the Lord. So ask, would I do this? Okay? Would I joyfully do this? Just write, would I joyfully do this, dot, dot, dot. Because I'm going to have four things under this. Would I joyfully do this in front of my kids? When I'm living in a gray area or I'm doing something that's a little questionable, would I do it in front of my kids? Second of all, would I do it in front of my mom? That one kind of got us, right? We were watching TV once, a show Julie and I liked, you know, popular show. And we said to my parents who were there, you got to watch this with us. And within three minutes we were like, oh my word. Because we had gotten used to it, but with their perspective, it was embarrassing. Third, would I do it in front of my spouse? Do they know about it? And fourth, would I do it in front of my Lord? Question five, and again, we'll develop these next week. Does it preoccupy my time and thinking? Does it preoccupy my time and thinking at the expense of my responsibilities? Does it preoccupy my time and thinking at the expense of my responsibilities? Number six, am I going too fast or are you okay? Yes, I am. Yes, I'll slow down. Does it no, Does it preoccupy my time and thinking at the expense of my responsibilities? Number six, if I misuse it or abuse it, if I misuse it or abuse it, can it actually do damage to me physically? If I misuse it or abuse it, can it actually do damage to me physically? 
or to my career, marriage, or relationship with my kids. If I misuse it or abuse it, can it actually do damage to me physically or to my career, marriage, or relationship with my kids? And the last one's one we've heard for many years, but we need to ask it again. Does it make me more holy or more worldly? Does it make me more holy or more worldly? There is no middle ground with that question. Either it makes you more like Christ or less like Christ. Now I want you to take those questions and I want you to study Romans 14 this week. And I want you to go before the Lord. I'm asking you this as your friend and your pastor. I want you to go before the Lord and I want you to lay out those areas that you know are questionable. And those areas where you have debate. And those areas that you know are a little controversial. Or maybe where your conviction about it is a little bit more, shall we say, loose. And honestly assess that in light of those questions that I believe the Lord's given us as to whether it is really pleasing the Lord. We'll go more in depth this week. I'll give you some more challenges. We'll probably spend a third week dealing with a couple passages from the epistles. All right, let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the challenge that you have given us to walk in your word, and to walk by the standard of holiness. Father, it's a challenge to us because the world is very strong. And the enticement of temptation is very strong. And many times our inclination is to go back into the former life and to walk in the old man and to do the things that are not pleasing to you. Lord, your word and your spirit are stronger than temptation and stronger than the world and stronger than our old nature. You've given us a new nature. And it's marked with holiness. So Lord, as we spend time in your word this week and as we reflect on what you have taught us this morning and as we analyze these questions, I pray you would give every single one of us clarity. I pray you would stoke our conviction so that we are sure how we should live. And Father, where that gets uncomfortable and where it challenges us and where it causes us to confront things that are, that are ingrained, things that are our biases, I pray that you'd give us a sensitivity to your spirit so we would yield those things offered to you, offering them as a living sacrifice so we would be holy and acceptable and pleasing to you. Lord, do a work in my life this week. Do a work in the life of each person that's in this room. Speak to us, we pray. And Father, we're anxious to get back into your word throughout the week and to come back next week and get back in your word again and see what you have to say to us. We thank you and praise you for what you're doing. Lord, we want to worship you again and praise you with our lips for who you are and how much we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.